Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who maybe have some interest in politics, let's just imagine, if you will, our country in a total state of crisis. Chaos, economic, I mean, we've been in a deep, dark depression. Inflation has run rampant. Moral problems, very, very low uh, employment availability and massive, massive double-digit unemployment. On top of that, a moral crisis where because there's such rampant problems in the economy, there's more prostitution and pornography than ever before as people are searching for any way to make a living and selling themselves in the process. Perversion. Our military in shambles. Let's just say that was our situation, and a leader came along. And the leader began to say, we are a nation that has a great destiny. We've forgotten who we are. We're a people who, who, who need to return to a moral root. Our problem is a moral problem. We need the right moral leadership. And, and he began to say, if you'll elect me, I will do these things. And so... He was elected. And four years later, he's delivered on all these promises. He has restored the economy. He, he's made our technology industry the envy of the world. Our economy is now booming. Um, crime has disappeared from the streets. Prostitution and all sorts of human trafficking and all these things have been outlawed. It doesn't exist. And he's running for re-election. Let me ask you, would you, would you vote for a guy like that? So did the Christians in Germany. They elected Adolf Hitler. And that's what I just described to you in detail. Hitler promised all of these things, and he delivered. Hitler had the overwhelming support of the church. And this is a little fact of history we don't like to talk about. Milton Mayer wrote a wonderful book called They Thought They Were Free, and he said it this way, Fascism came as an angel of light, and German Christians, Protestant and Catholic, welcomed Hitler as a gift from God. Nazism was seen as redemptive of a decadent, sinful society. It came almost as Puritanism to a majority who were sick of perversion and license in society. See, Hitler used the church as a springboard to power. One prominent pastor named Sigurd Leifler wrote this, In the pitch-black night of church history, Hitler became a window of our age through which the light fell on Christianity. Through Hitler, we were able to see the Savior. Another had said this way, Christ came to us through Adolf Hitler. How many of you know what the insignia was on the SS belt? Show it up there. It says, God with us. That was the insignia on the SS troops belt. Yeah. Very few Christians in Germany opposed Adolf Hitler. There were a few. One in particular whose name has gone down in history is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young very talented theologian. He preached that Hitler's religion was what John called the spirit of the Antichrist. 
and it actually opposed the true purposes of God. Bonhoeffer taught that pure devotion to Christ would be the only thing that would save Germany's ills, and Nazism was of the spirit of the Antichrist. He was considered a radical. He was considered an extremist by most German Christians, unpatriotic. And when the Nazis hung this man for his crimes, very few Christians wept in Germany. And yet, this man has gone down in history as one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. His works are still widely read today, indispensable in a lot of shelves. I consider, I, I consider uh, um, some of his works to be the finest I've ever read. Without question, he was the greatest German theologian since Martin Luther. Like righteous Abel, though he is dead, yet he speaks. You see, the world has a history of supporting powerful men that they believed were capable, good, moral leaders who, while proclaiming that they worked in the name of good or in the name of God, amassed great power and used that power actually to oppose the true ministry of Jesus, the true church of Jesus Christ. It has happened again and again. Different names, different faces, but as we will see tonight, the same spirit. It's a sobering lesson. So tonight we're going to witness John's vision and revelation as a world leader arises who many hail as a great leader. Some would say he seems to solve all the world's problems. Some see him as the Messiah. But in his heart is nothing but darkness and nothing but Satan. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 13, which is where we left off. Chapter 13, verse 1. We'll go once again as we have verse by verse. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Um, in Revelation 12, John's view had been a heavenly view, and now suddenly he's, he's got an earthly view. His view shifts to the earth, and he stands on the sand of the sea. It literally doesn't say there um, that the dragon stood on the sand of the sea in the Greek. In the Greek text, it actually just simply says, and stood on the sand of the sea. So there's a lot of question among theologians who can debate about the smallest details, mark, remarkably, as to whether it's John standing on the shore of the sea or the dragon standing on the shore of the sea. And the NIV translators obviously fell on the side of the dragon, so they put the dragon in there. It's not actually in the text. But the bottom line is that uh, it doesn't really matter because John is simply describing what he sees. So wherever, wherever he's seeing it, he's seeing it. Now, when he talks about the shore of the sea, many have suggested to the Israeli mind uh, of the time, you would certainly have thought of the sea as representing turmoil and uncertainty. We're talking about the Mediterranean, typically, um, uh, the great mystery beyond. Some say the world, the sea represents the world of politics or the world of religion, certainly world intrigue. And he says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. So out of the sea, a beast comes forth. The word beast here is an uh, ancient Greek word that basically gives you the idea of a wild, dangerous animal. Okay, A wild, dangerous animal. 
Now, the beast here is different from the dragon in Revelation 12, but he bears a lot of resemblance, and so he's obviously identified with him, kind of like, the, like the, the dragon who we know is Satan. The beast also has seven heads and ten horns, so there's a very clear visual identification, okay? Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. The beast here is very similar to four beasts described in Daniel chapter 7. They also came out of the sea and bore resemblance to a bear, a leopard, and a ten-horned monster. But in the book of Daniel, Daniel is specifically told that by the angel that each of these represents a successive world empire. In other words, an empire is going to rise, and then another empire is going to rise, and another empire is going to rise, and then a fourth. Now, that's interesting because it gives us a little idea here into how this prophetic symbolism might best be interpreted. In fact, let's, let's read it from Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 7. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. He's just described the vision. And he told me and gave the interpretation. These four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, because of its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, and, and the horn that looked more imposing than all the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And I, I watched this horn waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came that they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom and will appear on the earth. It's different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from all the earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings. He'll speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. How many of you recognize that phrase? But the court will sit and the power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. At the end of this matter, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, I took the time to read that. As Daniel, you know, John doesn't so much very often give us these great explanations, but there was something about Daniel's inquisitive mind that he would ask. He wasn't good enough to just get the vision. He said, okay, what does this mean? And because he asked the Lord, the Lord told him. And so we have a great palette to understand how to interpret this, right? We can see it and understand a little of this, this symbolism and what it, what it means. Now, virtually all of your Bible expositors, your classic Bible expositors, identify these seven-headed, ten-horned beasts in some way, shape, or form with the Roman Empire, either the old Roman Empire or a future uh, revived Roman Empire under a beast who is yet to come. The seven horns are thought to, excuse me, the seven heads are thought to represent Rome. And that's partially because later on in chapter 17, 
there's a description of this harlot that sits upon seven hills. And everyone knows that Rome, well, maybe not everyone, but <clears throat> I'm telling you now, Rome is built on seven hills. And so because that's very, very well known in antiquity, that the city of Rome is built upon seven hills. Everybody's like, ah, they're talking about Rome. So here again, most Bible expositors have always pointed it out and said, that means it's Rome. Now, I want to make something clear. The Bible doesn't say that. But it's very easy to understand why men have classically interpreted it that way. But I, I like to delineate between what the Bible says and how we often interpret it, okay? Now, in Daniel's vision, one of these ten horns who represent ten kings, whether they're at the same time or they're successive, we don't know. But this one king becomes very boastful, blasphemous, and more powerful than them all, and is very effective against God's people for a time. He says he defeats the saints of God for a time. It looks bad. But in the end, he's defeated, and the saints, that's you and me, receive the kingdoms of this world under the leadership of the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Now, how and when it happens? We can only hold those questions in our heart. But there's a principle to remember that we see in both Daniel and here in Revelation. Are you ready? Even when we appear to be losing, even in those moments that it looks extremely bad, we know what the end is. In the end, the Lord stops it, and the Lord basically puts the saints in charge of the entire kingdom and the administration of the earth. Now, that's Bible. That's clear. It's also good news. We win in the end, y'all. That's a good time to say amen. Yeah, woo. Yep. Yay, team. The beast of Revelation 13 is commonly known by another name. You heard me mention it already tonight, Antichrist. The word Antichrist actually appears in the Bible five times in four verses. Every time the word Antichrist is ever used, it's being used by John the Apostle. He wrote this book and he uses it in his epistles as well. He's the only one that ever uses the phrase. In 1 John 2.18, it says this, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, from this little passage, we pick up a few principles about this Antichrist thing. First of all, the force was at, already at work 2,000 years ago in John's time. Agreed? Okay. And more than one person is functioning in an Antichrist spirit. Okay, so it's not just a man called the Antichrist. It is a spirit at work, and multiple people have functioned in that. Many, he says, the Antichrist and many Antichrists. It's important to recognize that ultimately the Antichrist spirit is a spirit that is at work against the church. Um, ultimately, in the view of many, certainly the view of futurists, and it's very plausible to make this claim, that there will someday be one man who more than anyone before him is the fulfillment of this type and leads the world in an end-time rebellion, if you will, against the coming kingdom that the Lord will ultimately physically establish on the earth. And between now and then, in the echoes of history, we will see multiple little previews of this as that spirit is at work. We'll see little previews within the four walls of a single church sometimes, 
And we'll see little previews within the nations. I won't mention who I'm talking about because this is online, but there's actually a, a major world leader right now. I'm not, I don't think he's the Antichrist, but I'm watching what he's doing in his nation and how he is systematically opposing the church and systematically he's considered an incredibly effective world leader. But, he, you know, as I look at him, I was just looking at an image of him the other day, and I could just, pardon me for getting weird on you, I could see that spirit all over him. But, again, many, many, many have functioned in that spirit throughout the millennia. He said here, they went out from us. That's interesting. The Antichrist that John was dealing with had come out from the church. They had once identified themselves as believers, but now opposed the work of Jesus Christ. And, and John also makes it clear that they never really belonged to the church. They were just there. Interesting. 1 John 2, 22 says this, Who is the liar? It is the man that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So this spirit fundamentally lies. It denies the lordship. It doesn't mean it's saying, he's not Lord, he's not Lord. That's not what it means. It means by its actions, by how it functions, it is denying the Lord's authority. It's opposing his lordship and his authority. Make sense? It actually might very well be saying to somebody, oh, yeah, he's, he's Lord. I'm, I'm a believer. I believe he's Lord. But in all of its function, it's actually opposing the true authority of the Lord. 1 John 4 says this, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. There it is again. And finally, in 2 John 7, it says this, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Such a deceiver, such a person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, John's pretty, pretty clear. John is referring to a spirit, individuals, and an individual. It's really funny that in the mind of uh, a lot of the world, in the mind of a lot of the church, actually, the, the thing that's captured the imagination of people is this concept of an antichrist. It's like, you know, the movies, the omen, and this kind of stuff, and the omen part 94, and this kind of, you know, all these, right? Okay, which really have zero to do with Scripture most of the time. Very, very, very little actually to do with anything like that, even, even loosely based upon that. But the idea that you see so much of the time... I think it helps to understand what the word antichrist means. The prefix anti may mean, mean against. Sometimes people think that means the opposite of. The antichrist is, is opposed to Jesus. He's the instead of Jesus. He's the pseudo-Jesus, fake Jesus, replacement Jesus. Okay? Um, it is anti the church. It opposes and ultimately will try to persecute and control and limit the true church. That's what the Spirit does. Wherever he's at work, frankly, you'll see the anti show up and try to limit it in some way. In 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul gives us a little insight. He says, he will oppose and exalt. He's talking about the Antichrist. 
the man of sin, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, many will point out that a lot of people think that there will someday be a literal man who stands up in a rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem and proclaims that he is God and can be, should be worshiped. This may very well be true. But what I think is important to recognize is that this spirit pretends to be God. It tries to do, uh, be a substitute for Christianity while opposing the real thing. I have been in, I remember being in a, a church in uh, another nation. It was in the mountains of a town in South America. I won't go into the details, but I, it, there was a cathedral in this village, and I had never felt a spirit of death in a building like I felt in that church. I mean, in fact, it was funny. All the priests who had ever been the priests of that church were buried in it. There were images of death all around, every martyrdom, everything. But what the spirit that was in the church, it was like, and the people came in, and they were, they were afraid. And, and what, what they were perceiving, what they believed to be holiness, to be worshiped, was actually death and fear. There was nothing of the Spirit of God in that place. And, and what came to me as I'm standing there, I'm saying, Spirit of the Antichrist sits in the church of Jesus and proclaims himself to be holy, to, to be God. Make sense? Uh, it, it happens a lot. It, it Really, it's not an uncommon thing. I don't mean to weird you out, but it's just not. There are many occasions in which a religious spirit sets itself up to be worshipped, proclaiming itself to be Oh, I'm, this is the Lord, but the Spirit of Jesus isn't in there, and in the end, it'll actually try to oppose and dominate and l- minimize the true move of God. The Bible gives this very many names, this Antichrist. He's the little horn of Daniel 7. He's the king of fierce countenance in Daniel 8. The prince that shall come is described in Daniel 9. The willful king in Daniel 11 um, Paul refers to him as the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one. We're all talking about the same, a man and at the same time, this spirit. Our passage continues. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So the power of this world influencer is clearly from Satan. He's the power behind the throne. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? One of his heads mortally wounded, and the deadly wound is miraculously healed. And this basically turns him into a rock star. And many times, again, this has been depicted. Some of you may have seen fictional accounts of things like that, of this being, uh, you know, like in the, your Tim LaHaye movies and that sort of stuff in books. Um, but what we do see is that in this, uh, the, he, he miraculously covers and his recovery is mentioned as a reason for the world's worship and devotion to the beast. It's kind of like Jesus was crucified and died and resurrected, and he's kind of, it's like an anti-Messiah thing, Okay. And there's some validity to that. And the world begins to see him as this amazing political figure. Who is like the beast and who can make war with him? I mean, hey, resistance is futile. 
He is, he is going to be your boss any way you look at it. Let's jump on board the team because this is the winning team, y'all. And that's the, that's the world message. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Here again, three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Now, both Daniel and Revelation, here again, parallel stories speak of this king, this leader, speaking many blasphemies, lies, being very boastful, speaking against God and speaking against his authority. Now, historicists, let's talk about our, our basic views here as we've talked about the four views. The historicist view, this is actually a, a, a publication from many, 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 many years ago, around the time of the Reformation. It basically says the Antichrist is the Pope of Rome. Now, this was taught by Martin Luther. This was taught by many of the Reformers during the 16th century. Um, they have believed it, and to this day, many, many, many people believe that the beast that is spoken of is the Pope. And to support their views, they point out the many blasphemous comments that popes have made throughout the history. And popes have made some blasphemous comments, frankly. Pope Nicholas I said this, I am in all and above all, so that God himself and I, the vicar of God, have both the same consistory, and I am able to do all that God can do. I then, being above all, seem by this reason to be above all gods. So you can understand why the Reformers, you know, saw the Pope as the, as the you know, the Antichrist and various other well-known Catholic leaders at the time, Roman Catholic leaders, as being the false prophet and this kind of stuff. And so you'll find this teaching going back many, many generations. Leo the Thirteenth in 1894 said, We hold the place of God Almighty on earth. Pope Pius V said, the Pope and God are the same. He has all the power in heaven and earth. I could go on and on and on. There have been some pretty bad popes over the years. Now, I'm not picking on my friends, the Catholics, okay? This is why we had a Reformation, right? Frankly, this is why the Protestants said, um, no. Um, we're not buying it. This is not in accordance with the Scripture, with the Word of God, and why the church world split in the way that it did. I will point out also that Pope Francis hasn't said any of these things, although he does hold views that, in my humble opinion, are in great contrast to Scripture. Um, and, and I will also point out that um, those who hold that position, that the Roman church is the Antichrist church, um, they'll say, yeah, you know, they've been in that position for 500 years, and the church, you know, the popes have never repudiated the statements of the previous popes, and of course they can't by canon law. One pope has to support the statements of a previous pope by, by canon law. So it's a little complicated. You can see why a lot of people believe this. Now I'll say in modern evangelical America, fewer and fewer people believe this. In fact, I hear a lot of them nowadays say they believe that the Muslim uh, faith is the Antichrist faith. I, I, I hear that a lot, you know. Um, I don't think that you and I are going to really be able to, to, to nail that one down. But I will say this, I don't think there's any question that many popes functioned more in the Antichrist spirit, and many world religious leaders have functioned more in the Antichrist spirit than in the spirit of Christ at times. There's no question. And they've opposed and put down and persecuted the true church many times. I've also known evangelicals in America, by the way, to function in the same spirit, but I'll just leave it at that and move right on. In a nutshell... 
The historicist viewpoint of all these passages follows the reformers' thinking that basically we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, the papacy. Now, preterist and allegorical interpreters take a very different view. They don't believe that there's a future, uh, excuse me, a future Antichrist, nor do they believe the Pope is the Antichrist. They believe we're talking about Nero and the successive Flavian dynasty that followed him. You see, after the Emperor Nero's death, the empire nearly collapsed. It nearly fell apart. But uh, it revived under Vespasian, that was called the Flavian dynasty. Vespasian, um, uh, and then his son Titus, and then uh, Titus's brother, also Vespasian's son, Domitian, greatly revived the empire. So they're thinking that the Antichrist is not a literal man, but a throne. That's their view. Um, and they believe that the, the fatal head wound was when Nero nearly blew it, okay? But then the empire was sort of revived. However, all of these views, as interesting as they are, do not mean that a man of sin will not someday arise on the world scene. In fact, I think everyone in this room could agree it's pretty easy to envision it nowadays. It's pretty easy to envision how out of chaos, masses might just support the guy who said all the right things and was charismatic. Notice that the beast's career is 42 months long. That's the exact time all these other events are happening. We see the city being trampled by Gentiles, the two witnesses preaching. By the way, even Jesus' ministry on earth, public ministry, was three and a half years. Three and a half years has somehow other amazing prophetic significance. You know, when people talk about biblical numerology, I hear that one talked about less, but man, is it over and over and over, three and a half years prominently, 1,260 days, seen over and over and over in Scripture. Verse 7, he was given authority, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nations. Now, this is very similar, again, to Daniel 7 and the fourth beast that he describes there. And Revelation 12 is describing what futurists believe is going to be the satanic persecution of the church, massive, massive persecution under a solo world leader who ultimately is possessed by Satan. And the fact that he's able to make war on the saints and overcome them is often attributed to the fact that he's doing it, frankly, in the name of Christ. If he ever has, by the way, the fact that he's a world leader is pretty clear that he has authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That's interesting. In a real sense, there hasn't ever been a world leader up till now who's had authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, which, again, is something the futurists will quickly point out. Ah, there's going to be a future one as well. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. You know, in all the Omen movies, it's like the, the Antichrist guy is bad from childhood, right? But in the biblical version, he comes across as the greatest guy you've ever met. He solves all the world's problems. He's incredibly charismatic. He fixes everything until he, until he is in total control, and then he unleashes his power against the true uh, saints of God. Verse 9, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, 
With the sword, he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. That's deep. The writer calls for us to have wisdom and understand. Basically, he's saying, look, God has allowed this for a season and for his own purposes. God for a season, because men are wicked and men have been given authority in the earth, they can do evil. And he's basically saying, look, if you get jailed for your faith, you're going to jail. If the authorities martyr you, you will be martyred. The only way to victory is steadfast faith and endurance in Jesus, which leads to eternal life. And even though in this life the saints are viciously attacked by the Antichrist and his followers, the saints of God must stay steadfast, patient, must endure, and believe in the ultimate justice of God. He is the Almighty, the Panocrator, who has all of this in his hand. We, that very first week we talked about the Panocrator, right? He's got it all. He will reward the persecutors in due time. You know what I take away from this? <clears throat> you know, we can, we can immediately think, well, it's going to be bad when that happens. You know what? It's that way now. It requires patient endurance of the part. If you're his, if you want to make a difference in this world and in this life for the kingdom of God, Jesus said, in this world you will have persecution, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We have to have patient endurance now. In every generation, in every move of God that there's ever been, there has been some backlash. And if we're going to experience the great things that the Lord wants us to do in our own lives, we're going to have pushback. And there's going to be moments that we have to have patient endurance. It's the only way. Because justice ultimately, we, we get this feeling that, okay, we're, we're supposed to have total fulfillment and happiness in this life. That's not biblical, y'all. In fact, some of you said, you know, I've been a Christian for 10 years, and yet there's something in me that's still a longing that's unfulfilled. I don't even raise, want you to raise your hands, because if you were honest enough, most of you in this room would say, yep, I've been a Christian a long time, and God is good, and I trust him, but there's something that's just not, I, I still want, I still have a hunger. Let me tell you something. Until you are with him in that day, in that heavenly city, as long as you're on this world, as long as we are walking in the flesh, we're not going to be completely fulfilled. And it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed, it's okay that everything's not right. It's okay that all your problems aren't over with. It's okay that you still struggle with this, that, or the other thing. It's not supposed to be perfect. It's there that it becomes perfect. Listen, if everything was going to be perfect here, why would we long for that heavenly home? How do we see, you know, the great saints described in, in Hebrews 11? It says, listen, they confessed they were strangers and pilgrims here on the earth, and they looked for a city whose builder, that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We're an eternal people. We don't get it all. We don't come into the fullness of it in this life. We're supposed to look forward to heaven, y'all, not dread it. Patient endurance of the saints. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming out of the, out of the earth. 
He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Now, this creature is like the beast rising from the sea, but this one rises from the land. They're very similar. There's a similar uh, view, but they're different in origin. Um, and they're also different in rank because one serves the other. The second beast, who's often referred to as the false prophet, has a very mild lamb-like appearance. He appears innocuous. He appears safe. He's like a skilled politician. He is the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing, this guy, okay? He, he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Interesting. The message of the second beast is the same message uh, of, of the first one, ultimately empowered by the dragon. The words come from the dragon. He's referred to as the false prophet in Revelation 16 and 19 and 20. He's distinct from the Antichrist, and he's distinct from the dragon. Um, this false prophet exercises all the authority of the first beast. And do I believe this can be a literal person someday? Yes. Do I also believe it can be symbolic of spirit throughout the ages? Sure I do. The beast rising from the earth, this wolf in sheep's clothing, is basically a satanic prophet who leads the world to worship, to buy into the beast and his ways. Verse 13, and he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He performs great signs. He's an ability to do signs and wonders, making fire call, come down from heaven like, like Elijah or like the two witnesses we read about a few weeks ago. This is amazing gifts, and people believe he is from God. Jesus said that some who worked miracles even in his name were false followers and would perish in hell. You'll find that in Matthew 7. Paul said that the Antichrist would come with all power, signs, and lying wonders. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Guess what? I like signs and wonders. Man, I love them. But signs and wonders do not always mean that God endorses a man, a ministry, or a message. Throughout history, there have been many supposed miracles and signs which were used to convince masses and lead them astray. History is full of examples. So, there is a spirit of the false prophet, just like there's a spirit of the Antichrist, and he sets up an image of the beast. Now, some people Im imagine this being a, a statue that people worship. Uh, I've seen uh, people, I've seen it described in, in modern uh, uh, explanations. This is a great computer that's used. Um, it's kind of funny, <clears throat> like uh, this, this becomes, uh, this computer almost becomes artificial intelligence in life. That's all speculation. It could be, Okay. You know, but I remember years ago, I was a young man. Everybody was talking about there was a computer now in Belgium, and this computer was, had a, was capable of carrying out having data on every single person on earth. See this phone? I could give you the name, address, and social security number. I couldn't give it to you, but literally 
and 120 gigs of data in text. Gary, am I right? You could store the information on every inhabitant on planet Earth on a phone, and you got one in your pocket too. So it didn't turn out to be the computer in Belgium. <clears throat> Point is, is that's interesting, and it's speculation, but we know that in some way, I mean, what if the image of the beast that he sets up is a PR campaign? In other words, I'm controlling the image of what people see. I'm just messing with you. I'm not being a heretic. I'm just being a mess. You know, it could be a lot of different things. But one thing that happens, this image, whether it's an artificial intelligence, whether it's a statue, whether whatever it is, it captures the imagination of the world. And in the day and age which we live, it's never been more possible. It is remarkable how easy this would be to be, to, to create nowadays. He forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or in his forehead that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. I think this is significant because we should note that economic persecution has always been the chief persecution against Christians. Now, here you got that image in your mind, and this is probably the image most of you guys are thinking of, right, automatically. And it may well be. But when the people of the early church read these words in Revelation chapter 13 for the first time, they knew exactly what it meant, and they were convinced of it. I mean, I've read their, their writings, some of them. You see, Domitian, keep in mind, <clears throat> Nero, and then Vespasian, and Titus, and Domitian. When Domitian came to power, Domitian insisted that he be worshipped as a god. In fact, he made it a law, especially in the area of Asia Minor, that you had to offer a pinch of incense to him, recognizing his spiritual deity. It was called sacrificing to the genius of Caesar, and the word genius doesn't mean he was smart. The word is actually meaning the spirit behind him, like the word genie. Okay? In other words, I am sacrificing to the God spirit that is Caesar. And you had to make that sacrifice. And when you made the sacrifice, you got a certificate. It was called a libellus. It had a stamp on it. And if you did not have the libellus, you could not buy or sell anything. You could not go to the marketplace. You could not sell your home. You could not buy groceries without a libellus. Now, Christians at the time were pretty decimated by this. Some Christians actually gave in and made the sacrifices. Others would not. Um, I don't know if you know this, but like Domitian, like under, under the name of his coins, the coins say, Domitian, Lord and God. He proclaimed himself to be a God to be worshipped. Now, some today, Preterist or, and others, believe that Domitian might have been the Antichrist of Revelation and all that since past. But you know what? Since the days of Domitian, we've seen a lot of Antichrists, haven't we? We've seen your Hitlers. We've seen a lot of people rise up in that same exact spirit, surrounded by false prophets, surrounded by people who control the image. Hmm. Yeah. So we believe that while this prophecy may speak of many things, it also speaks of a time when another beast will arise, the ultimate man of sin. And we believe that under the government of the beast and his associate, someday there will be a mark given. Whatever that mark is, 
And without it, there's no economic movement, and that's how he controls. You know, obviously, you have the speculation to understand that today, again, technology would make this so easy, so easy. My kids were talking around the table the other day about how, um, Peter, is it true in Sweden that now they're putting chips in hands? Yep, Peter's nodding. And, and my kids were like, well, if, if you had to take it, I mean, like, would you, would you take it? Because it's like, I mean, you don't think, well, it's not really the mark of the beast. It's just, it's just a chip in your hand. But, you know, I don't know about you. I'm pretty weirded out about the idea of having a chip in my hand because I've seen the movies too, you know. <laughs> yep, yep, your pets have got a chip. That's it. Pets are, pets are going straight to hell because they got chips. Again, this is a lot of speculation. I'll, I'll get to it as we close here. But I want to read the last couple of verses here. It says, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number, and his number is 666. Now, there was a common concept in the ancient world. Uh, in Greek and Hebrew as well, letters were assigned a numerical value. For example, A would be 1. B would be 2. Okay? So um, you actually find... Examples in the ancient world, there's a very famous uh, graffiti in the ruins of Pompeii, and it says, I love her whose number is 545. And it was obviously the numbers of her, her name. So does this tell us who the beast is by figuring out the numerical value of his name? Using this method, a lot of people have come up with a lot of different names. Uh, the popes, the papacy, and then the popes at the same time said that Martin Luther was the Antichrist, John Knox. Others have proven, using this methodology, it was Hitler, it was Napoleon, it was Mussolini, it was Stalin. I remember when Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. They had the math. If you do, if you multiply it by this and you divide it by this, and it comes out to be 666, oh my. They did the same thing with Ronald Reagan, by the way. 666, six names, Ronald Wilson Reagan. <gasps> you can waste a lot of time on this. You really can. Okay. Some said it was Barack Hussein Obama, by the way. I heard that one too. <laughs> but the schemes for unlocking the number of the beast are as endless as they are confusing. To the preterists and some historicists who are trying to solve the mystery of 666, they, of course, insist it was Nero because the name Caesar Nero in Hebrew adds up to 666. But like I've just sold you, so do a lot of other names if you add them up right. To the expositors, it's a very simple answer um, to those people. But I, I think that it's possible that John was trying to leave a message in code that Hebrew readers would understand. It's, it's possible. But I think that when the time is necessary for the body of Christ, the people to understand and know it will know it because it can quickly become a distraction and a point of fear. And when something is being done to hype the body of Christ and make them in fear, especially if it's driven to sell a book or something like that, I look at it with a little bit of suspicion. Is it okay to say that, Pastor? I look at it with more than just a little bit of suspicion. Because, you know what, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. And if fear, fear has torment, it does not lead the body of Christ into the victory that we're supposed to walk into. It does not build the kingdom. It makes us want to crawl into our bug-out shelters and close the door and wait for the apocalypse to end. 
And that is not God's plan because you and I have a world to reach. There are people who are lost and do not know Jesus Christ, and there is a glorious gospel that will save them and cause them to, without a doubt, be in his kingdom in the end and to overcome all of these things. And that's supposed to be our focus. See, Christians do not need to fear the number 666. I know people, I won't go in that hotel room, 666. No, sir, I will not. I watched some. I literally got behind somebody. So they paid for something in a 7-Eleven. It was $6.66, and they said, you got to charge me more than that. I promise. I was standing there. I'm going, you got to be kidding me. Charge me more. <laughs> hey, listen, you and I don't need to be fear. You know what? Instead of obsessing with fear and interest about the imitation, the mark of the beast, which is just the false mark, we should be looking for the genuine mark, which is the mark of Jesus Christ. Remember? Remember the mark of the Lord that sealed just a few chapters ago was all about the seal of the Lord in their foreheads, the seal. And guess what? It says, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Now, here's what that tells me. If your name is written in the book of life, you will not be walking in the mark of the beast. So the question to ask is not, how do I avoid the mark of the beast? The question is, how do I get my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Because if you're there, you're good. Don't waste your time being in fear. If your name is in the book, your name has been published in heaven. That's deep. And that's the hope. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.